have been extremely time conscious this morning because I had the opportunity today to speak here, 9 o'clock, run over to Hiawatha at 10 o'clock, and then back here at 11 o'clock. And so I've been very, very cautious. And if you know anything about me, you know time means relatively nothing. And so, <laughs> nothing, it just means nothing. And so, since this is the last service, time now means nothing. So, ha, 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 Amen. <laughs> That's good. Um, I was thinking of that. Hey, flip, that, flip back to that song there for a second, eh? Man, that, that, that uh, chorus there. Sing, Mary, sing. Lullaby the King. Born to be our pardon. Can you imagine being Mary? I, I think of the, the movie The Passion, where, uh, if you're familiar with that, where he stumbles and falls. Oh, that's one of my favorite scenes. And where he, he communicates to her that it's all in control and I have to do this. And this is his mother. What it must have been like to be Mary. To, you know, that's, that's really what Christmas, you know, the heart of it isn't, like Cor was saying, it's not about, it's not about uh, gifts and and it, it, those are good things. And it's not about family, and that's a good thing. But it's really about that God loved us enough to send Christ to be our sin sacrifice for us. And it happened in the way of, of uh, this, this woman. We don't know much about Joseph. We know more about Mary. This, this woman had to have the utter pain of seeing her son. I have three sons. I can't even imagine what that would, would be like. And what a beautiful thing. I hope you take that with you this Christmas, this Christmas season. Last night I was working on my uh, electrical in my house. And uh, this has a good outcome. <laughs> so obviously I'm here. So, uh, <laughs> so I was working on the electrical. I'm putting a, I'm remodeling my, our basement. And I'm working on the electrical. And I'm in the, uh, Seth is up there. Uh, we had these, uh, Seth has been helping me on my basement, and uh, we got the power in the bathroom. I got that all wired up and everything, and I got the, there's one long uh, uh, cord that wires all three switches, and then you have to take the ones, uh, the according uh, other switch, or other wires, and hang them to the bottom of the switches so you get the power to go through on each one. Forget all that for a second if you don't understand it, it's fine. What you have to do is, in order to figure this thing out, though, because I didn't label them, in order to figure it out, you got to turn the power on, you got to put them together and find out what comes on, right? I've got a, a vanity light, I've got a, a fan light, and I've got a little night light inside the fan light, and there's three different switches, and I got to do that. So go over to the power switch, flip the power switch, or the, uh, the breaker, go over there, touch the things real careful like, and, and observe what comes on. And then I go over and I turn it back off, and I'm working on it then where it's safe. And a thought occurred to me as I think about this this morning. Um, is that the Christian life, I think, a lot of times is like that. We come to Sunday church, and we turn the power on, and we find out what lights, and then we walk away and turn the power back off, and we walk the rest of our days kind of dealing with this thing, with the doctrines and the thoughts and all, but we don't, we don't, we don't have the power on. My encouragement to you is to live your life all week long working on this outlet with the power on. Be like this kid here. This kid's one of my favorite kids. <laughs> it's a picture of me in 1969. Uh, that is what Christianity is all about. Now, kids, before he tries at home, it's an analogy, okay? It is an analogy. Uh, sign here for the waiver. This is an analogy. In other words, Christianity is not just a system of doctrines. It is that. It certainly is that. 
I love propositional truth. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful thing. Christ is God. Christ is my Savior. How the atonement works. Those are beautiful things. But those are just thoughts. It's like sitting in a physics lab and understanding the flow of electrons is, is, is electricity. You know, and understanding the right-hand rule and, huh? Some of you engineer types think I don't remember that stuff, huh? 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 All that. That's oh, my left hand. He says that he's got a left hand. Stupid. Anyway, right-hand right hand rule, different things about magnetism and about electricity. Fine. Those are great things. But unless you lick your fingers and stick them in the outlet of God, you're just an engineer. <laughs> no offense. The... The idea is, is it's both those things. It's knowing about electricity, and it's also frizzing your hair out Monday to Saturday because you're living life in Christ. I think we often separate those two. Other cultures don't have as much difficulty, I think, as we do. That it's knowing about God, and it's knowing God. So my encouragement, I got a little challenge for you. My encouragement for you is uh, this year... Um, I'd like to challenge us as a church. Psalm, or excuse me, Jeremiah 23, 29. I got a graphic here, and it's, I only could find the graphic. It's a hammer and, a, and, a, and fire there. And I, I can only find the graphic. I found this this morning. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, in, it's in the King James. It's got the aeth kind of thing. So I'm going to say it like it, should, like it should be read. Is not my word like fire, saith the Lord. And like a hammer that breaketh a rock in pieces. Now, that is the truth of the Word of God. I, 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 you know, I, someday I'm going to be a pastor of an Irish Pentecostal church. <laughs> and I'm going to love it. Uh, but seriously, Jer and God's speaking through Jeremiah, and he says this. And this is, this is true. He says, when I speak, I don't just speak words so you can know about me. You will know that. But you want to know about fire? Get in the fire. You want to know about force equals mass times acceleration? Put your head in front of God's sledgehammer. <laughs> okay? That's the physics and the electricity and the chemistry that God wants you to know. It's not just about. It's more than that. So my encouragement this year is that that, that verse is true, and it's always a safe thing to believe that God's word is true then I, I would love to see us as a church be more active Monday to Saturday and reading the Word of God. I'd love to do that more. And I have a, a little challenge for us. I, um, I, I'm giving you a little heads up here. Today's December 3rd. Uh, I'm not going to start until January 1st. But I've got three different programs here. They're all from a magazine called Discipleship Journal. It's in your insert. You can see the, the, the website. You can get this stuff for free. We'll have some copies of this out next week. Um, don't be, it's totally legal to print this out. It just says do not copy all over it. But they, it's legal. You can have your own copy like that. We're going to have, we're going to order some this week. We'll have them out there if you'd like one. There are three different Bible reading plans. Of course you can just pick up your Bible, read Genesis to Revelation. So now of course you can do that. People have been doing that forever. There's some three, there's some guides here that will help you though. I'm a pretty scattered person and I've been using uh, this one right here for, for many years. This is, the, this is the plan that I use. And what it does is, instead of just reading one at a time, you can read four different things. Like if you follow this plan, January 1st, you'd read Matthew, you'd read Acts, you'd read Psalms, and you'd also be reading Genesis. Just a little bit in each, each book. You can, 
uh, you can read the whole thing uh, through. There's only 25 days a month. So in other words, it gives you time to catch up. Most months have 30, 31 days, and so you can, you can kind of catch up. This gets you through the Bible in one year. Some of you might be saying, that's more of a commitment than I want to make. This one gets you through the New Testament in a year. They claim that five minutes a day, five days a week, you can read through the New Testament. Average reader. And uh, this one just goes through the New Testament. That would be a, maybe another way to get plugged in. Some of you don't, would like to read through the Bible, but you don't want to read it four things at a time. That would drive you absolutely crazy. You've got to do one thing, get it done, do it right, move on to the next thing. That is totally not me. I am, if you see the side of my bed, I've got about 20 magazines and about six books that are all in some semblance of, of projects. So I like all over the place. But those of you who don't, uh, I don't know why you go here and listen to me, but those of you who do, <laughs> your high J's on the Meyer Brig, Myers-Briggs, you want one thing. And this, it just takes you a book at a time. It takes you right through. So in, in January, you read through Genesis, and then you skip over to Mark. And then later you do Exodus, so it takes you right through. These are all online for free. We'll have them here for free next week. I'm opening up a blog for 2007. It's going to be called Hope 2007, Bible in a Year, B-I-A-Y, dot blogspot.com. It's in your thing also. And it's a place you can just post some thoughts. Things that the Word of God, as you've licked your fingers, stick them in the outlet of God during the week. Things just to write. We're going to let anybody write anything they want on that blog, and we'll open that up. For that. That's my encouragement and my challenge to you for 2007. One other common objection. The other common objection to doing something like this is saying, well, I start things like this, but I never finish them. <laughs> Welcome to my world. I have uh, been a follower of Jesus 23 years. I don't know how many times I've picked this up. I've never finished it in a year, ever. This year, I'm actually going to make a goal to do it. You can hold me accountable. But so What? So you do it in two years. So what? So you do it in three years. So what? You get a chance to go through the Word of God and you get to understand it more. You do more doing something like this than you, than you don't do. Take it from someone who is just a wee bit scattered. All right. We're in John chapter 10. Today is a very exciting day. We are ending John chapter 10. We're ending a very, very significant portion of the Gospel of John in the fact that today... John chapter 10, at the end of this, this beautiful passage on the Good Shepherd, today is the last public battle that Jesus will have with the religious rulers in the entire gospel. We're halfway through the gospel. There's 21 chapters in the gospel of John. We're halfway through it, and Jesus is done battling with these religious rulers, religious leaders. He has been battling with them from chapter 5, on through chapter 10. That's been his major portion. There's some other sprinkled before that, but he's done now. He's going to be done with any kind of public debate with them. He's also done in any kind of public proclamation. Wow. John chapter 10, halfway through the book, he's not going to proclaim until his crucifixion. There's going to be a lot of other things that are going to happen, but they're not going to be in a public setting. So today we're going to, we're going to end it that way. In order to kind of review, and some of you, it's maybe your first time ever at Hope, or your first time at least in John chapter 10, I want to kind of take you a little walk down memory lane. John chapter 10 is one chunk of scripture. It really is. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Really. It's hard even for me to think about a good application, because this is just talking about Jesus. Okay, so it's all about who Christ is, and he, it's this metaphor about he is this shepherd, 
And we are sheep. And I was thinking about that, thinking, well, in some ways it just doesn't work for us because we're not sheep. And we don't know anything about shepherding in this culture. Maybe a few of you do, but not, not much. Maybe a few of us grew up on a farm and we know about ranch herding or taking care of pigs or chickens or something. But the whole concept of sheep and shepherd is a little bit foreign to us. But so try to think through the metaphor as best you can. Try to put, put your mindset as if you were in this culture. Try to put your mind in maybe like someone in your life who's been, or someone you look to as a mentor, you know, that would take care of you. Or maybe someone you long for to be a mentor, or maybe you've heard of a mentoring situation, or something, so this analogy fits. I want to walk you through the entire chapter. There's two very separate location, or excuse me, time frames that this happens, but it's all got one theme. So I call it John 10 is really in two acts, one play, two acts, three scenes in the first act, and uh, two scenes, no, excuse me, three scenes in the second act. Is that correct? I've got this uh, in act two. Yeah. Three in each one. So let's take a look at this again. I'm just going to kind of read through the first uh, 21 verses here uh, relatively quickly just so we can kind of get a, a, a framework for it here. Okay, John chapter 10. Hang on because there's a major league analogy happening here. John chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man born blind. He did it in an unorthodox way and he did it on purpose in this unorthodox way. He <laughs> spit on the ground, grabbed the mud, stuck it in the guy's eyes. The guy he tells him to go and wash. What else would you do when somebody horks on the ground and, and <laughs> picks up the mud? I mean, of course, that's what you're going to go do. You're going to go wash. He does. He can see. He did it that way instead of just saying, you're healed. He did it that way because he knew it would tick off the religious rulers. I'm, I'm convinced of that. He did it that way because they asked him, what exactly did he do? Aha, he made mud. Can't make mud. Can't make mud on the Sabbath. That's a religious rule they're breaking, not necessarily a... Uh, that's not God's rule. It's not anything in the Bible. It just was something they were, that would make them mad. And Jesus knew that. And he did it on purpose. I'm convinced he did that. Now he's speaking with them and he's trying to, he's trying to goad them on a little bit. And he's giving them an analogy of what happened. They've interrogated this blind man and they've thrown him out. Thrown him out of the synagogue. And Jesus says this about that. I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate. It's like Jesus saying, let me tell you a little story here. Okay, the story is this. I'll tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way. He's a thief and a robber. Everybody would agree with that. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out when he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. So you got this picture of the shepherd, he kind of, he calls out his sheep out of the pen, they come out of the pen, and he turns around, he's, he walks ahead, and the sheep, he just says, here sheepy sheepy, or whatever they say, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But, they'll never follow a stranger, in fact, they'll run away from him, because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. See, it's not about shepherding. He's saying, listen, you just got done dealing with this blind man. This blind man, by the way, who now can see, he came to me and I asked him, do you want to believe in the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah? Do you want to believe in the Christ? And the blind man said, tell me who he is. And I said, the one you're talking to is he. And he went down to his knees and he worshipped me. Guess what? He's a sheep. Guess what you guys are? You are a thief, a robber, or a stranger, 
Whichever coat you want to put on, that's who you are. And he's trying to, he's, he's indicting them. This is an indictment upon them. If you remember this scene right here, that's a sheep pen. That's how they would have made them as more of a permanent one. If it was a less uh, a permanent one, they would have used brush and all that kind of thing. Instead of having a wire gate, the shepherd himself would lay across the opening and the sheep would not, he could sleep and the sheep wouldn't, wouldn't jump over. They're not real bright. But Jesus, when, in verse 7, when he talks about being the gate, he's not shifting. It doesn't all of a sudden become a metal thing. He's saying, no, I'm sitting here as a, as a shepherd and I'm in your way. So he says this, therefore, in verse 7, Jesus said again, why? Because they didn't get it the first time. He says, I'll tell you the truth. I'm the gate for the shepherd. In other words, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shepherd who loves the sheep so much that I'm willing to stay there all night long and lay across the opening for them. All who enter, excuse me, all who ever came before me were thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the gate. I'm the real deal. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Oh man, what a, what a picture. Here's this, this sheep, and the sheep says, oh, I got the greatest shepherd. He spends the night out with us, and he cares for us. And if any bad wolfy woofies come, he takes care of them, because I know I'm safe when I'm in the sheep pen with my shepherd. And then even then, I can go out. Here, I'm a sheep. I'm out. I'm safe. It's happy. There's pasture. I come back in. I'm safe. It's good. It's good. Good to be a, to be a sheep in the sheep pen with the good shepherd. But, he says, this thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's why thieves come. Steal and kill and destroy. And Jesus says this, making this one of the most famous passages in the Bible. But I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. It, it, that is Christianity. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You can have life and have it to the full. That's what, that's what we want. If you don't believe me, just listen to any commercial on television. Any commercial on television is screaming to you, if you get my product, you will have life and have it to the full. Do you ever think about, you ever think about the lottery? I hope you don't think about it too much because the math is really bad on the lottery. But... <laughs> If you think about the lottery, there's an underlying assumption given. The underlying assumption is, I will be more full with more money. Right? If I have more money, I will have more full life. That's the way it will be. They've done studies with people who've won the lottery. They're not necessarily happier afterwards than they were before. It amazes me that our churches are empty on Sunday and our casinos are full 24-7. And, and they complain about the church saying, oh, they just want my money. Hello? <laughs> uh. <laughs> casinos now, they don't even want your money. They just want this card that you have. Oh, it's painless, you know, painless. What? Why is that full? Because people are under, under the influence, under the thinking that if I have more money, I will have a more full life. And Jesus Christ said, those people are strangers. All those different things in your life are strangers. They're not there to give you real life. I am. Verse 11, then what uh, Cor talked about last week. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. No, and I'm not just going to sleep here. I'm going to die for these sheep. When he says the phrase, I'm the good shepherd, that would have conjured up in these Jewish minds, that would have conjured up Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Jeremiah 23, where God indicts the shepherds of Israel and says, I will send my own shepherd. And the same thing in Ezekiel 34. They would have known by him saying, I am the good shepherd, that that was an indictment on them as bad shepherds and that he now was going to take over. He says, the hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand. Cares nothing for the sheep. Okay, he's making six bucks an hour over here reading a Grisham novel. Checking them out. Yeah, around 74. What I'm fine. Okay. You know, it just that's what a hired hand does. Hired hand sees a wolf coming, looks in the contract. Is there any workman's comp here? No. I am out of here. Six bucks an hour for a wolf attack, and not going to happen. I can get more sheep. I can get me a job or whatever. I can do something else. That's what a hired hand does. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Then he talks about the benefits of being uh, this. He says, um, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. You know, in Christianity, the other phrase you use, you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the difference. That's it's why it's not a religion. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. And it's a very big difference. A religion is a system of rules to try to get you to have a, have a connection with God. Christianity is, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they know me. There's a relationship here. Just as my father knows me, and I know my father. Whoa! That's how tight the relationship is with Christ. Same as the Father and the Son know each other. He says, my sheep know me, and I know them. Those of you who have been a follower of Jesus Christ for a while, think how well you know Jesus. Now think about how well he knows you. He knows you so well. And the crazy thing is he loves you. The shepherd of your souls loves you like that. He ain't no hired hand. He's there for the duration. When the wolves in your life come, he's there. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock. And one shepherd. I'm, going, I'm busting out outside of Jerusalem and Jewish people. I'm busting out to other people. And that's what, and hope, why I went down to Hiawatha Church that, for the second, second of three services today. We believe in starting new churches. Why more and more people need to know about this good shepherd. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. At the cross, when Jesus Christ died, go back one, leave it there, yeah. Uh, at the cross, when Jesus Christ died, it just wasn't the fact that we don't celebrate Easter and Good Friday because Jesus Christ was crucified physically. A lot of people were crucified. It's a horrible way to die. 
But there's probably worse ways to die. I don't know. Why do we celebrate this one man's death then? Why is Christianity based on a cross? Every Christian church you should go into, somewhere you'll probably find a symbol of a cross. Why do we celebrate that? Because at the cross, not only do we celebrate his, his death that way, but there's something else. We say, he took our sins upon him. All right, what does that mean? He took our sins upon him. Well, he, 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 you know, he took my punishment. He took the punishment of my sins. Well, what does that mean? It means that he took the punishment that you and I were due, which means he took, the Son of God took the wrath of God upon him. The good news of the gospel is simply this. There is a God who loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die in your place to rescue you from the wrath of God. That, that's the good news of the gospel. It wasn't rescuing you from the devil. The devil ain't even in the picture here. The good news of the gospel is Christ, or God loves you enough that Christ, being fully man and fully God, died in your place so that if you come to him and say, I want to be a sheep, I want to be rescued from this, you can be rescued from what? From the wrath of God. Now, a lot of people around the 1900s kind of got more liberal in their theology and said, hoo 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 I don't think I like this wrath of God thing. That's not so good. Of course it's not good. That's why Christ had to come and die. But I, I, I digress. Uh, it's not good. Of course, it's scary. Wrath of God, very bad. <laughs> to think of a holy and just omnipotent God who is angry is an amazing thing. Okay, I admit it. But to, to, to look at it that way and to say, all right, what makes God can take the wrath that's due us and there can be a substitute for us. Well, what people said on that is, you know what, you're really making God out to be. God is really just a divine child abuser. If it's his own son and he's attacking him, it's a divine child abuse. Right? This verse is, is the answer to that. It's not divine child abuse when the son says, send me, send me, I'll go. No one takes my life. No one takes my life. The Father loves me because I laid down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. No one took it from Christ. The Father did not force the Son. The Son said, I will go. I'd be glad to go to vindicate your glory and to give those sinners cleansing and forgiveness. It's a win-win. How do they respond to that? Last part of last week's deal. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he is demons possessed. God, he's raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, hey, hey, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of a man who's been born blind, of, of a blind man? They were divided. Okay, that's, that's act one. Act two today. That's the walk down memory lane. This is our last public battle. Here we go. Acts, or excuse me, uh, uh, Act 2, uh, Scene 1. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Now, stop there for a second. Uh, feast of Dedication was a de uh, feast that they had, and it, what we celebrate today, it's called Hanukkah. It's the same thing. And uh, what this was is when they rededicated the temple after the Syrians had come in and had... had uh, uh, butchered a pig or sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now, to a Jewish person, that's the most disgusting thing you could have possibly done. 
who is defiling their temple by having a pig in there and, 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 and slaughtering it or sacrificing it to your own gods in the temple. So this was a, a battle that was won by the Maccabees and they, they uh, uh, rededicated the temple and there was, a, uh, there was supposedly a miracle that happened where for eight days, one day's worth of oil lit the temple for eight whole days. That's where they get the eight days of Hanukkah. And this was a Jewish festival even at the time of Jesus. It happened in between the, new, the, new and the, or the Old and the New Testament. And you can read about it. There's Book of Maccabees, if you're familiar. It's an extra-biblical, I assume fairly uh, accurate book. I haven't read it, but it tells you about Hanukkah. It's winter, November, December-ish. Remember, we were at the, the uh, Feast of uh, Booths, Tabernacles, which is uh, uh, late fall, and now we're in November, December. So there's a gap there between uh, Act or John 10, Act 1, and John 10, Act 2. We don't know anything about what happens in those that few months in there. Now we're in uh, John 10, Act 2. It's November, December-ish, and Jesus is going to be crucified April, May-ish of the next year. Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. It was a portion of the temple that didn't get destroyed in the first destruction of the temple. And it was a portion that was still there. And it was like a porch, big area with a roof. So no matter what the weather was, you could hang out. It was up the Solomon's porch is another name. Uh, there's a church in town called that. And what, what they basically is a place for conversation. It's a public gathering place. People would do all kinds of different things out on this public area. He was walking. He was just out there walking in this Solomon's porch area. The Jews gathered round him. Now, remember the phrase the Jews in the Gospel of John does not mean just Jewish people because that'd be everybody. Okay, that's a silly thing to say. It's like saying people who are people were gathering around. It's a silly thing. It should just say people, right? But it says the Jews. And what usually that phrase means, and I think it's a continuation of what was happening in Act 1, is these religious types, these anti-Jesus types, these religious leader types who are trying to put him down. They gather around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now Jesus, this is one thing, a high value here at Hope, is that Christ loves, Christ loves honest questions. He loves honest questions questions. If you're here this morning and you're questioning, is the Bible real? Is there really even a God out there? What is this whole Christianity thing about? Who is Christ? All those kind of questions. Christ loves to answer those questions. I had those questions in college uh, and, and I still have big questions. We encourage big questions here at Hope. We love big questions, but, asterisks, they got to be honest questions. If, if, when, when Christ comes to you and answers them, then you'll follow. It's not, you will tell me why my son died. No. Jesus, when, if you just read the Gospels on how Jesus deals with those kinds of questions, he usually deals with tricksy questions with tricksy answers. Evasive questions get evasive Answers, And we're going to see the mother of all evasive answers here in just a little bit. It's, it's amazing. Jesus' answer to them is this. He says, I did tell you, but you, did, but you do not believe. Now, if you look in just the Gospel of John, he, he's never really told them that just flat out plainly. In John 4, he was talking with a Samaritan woman at a well, and she said, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, 
uh, I, I'm the one you're speaking with, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. He doesn't say the word Messiah, but he says, I, I'm the one. But that's to a Samaritan woman. The Jewish people would never have, uh, the, the, the Jewish leaders never would have been there. Then he, in John chapter 9, he speaks to the, to the blind man. The blind man says, or Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man, or the, the Messiah, or the Christ, Son of God? And the blind man says, tell me who he is, and I'd love to believe in him. And Jesus says, the one to whom you're talking to is he. It's one of those tricks, you know, it's a neat way to say it. It's a hip way of saying it. But um, he, he says, but, but there might have been a few religious types there, but not, it wasn't plain. Probably the most plain thing he ever said was in John chapter 8. He's talking to them, and, and they, they're talking about Abraham, one of their ancient fathers. And they said, Jesus is trying to make a point here, and he's making a clear point. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. John 8, 58. That's a pretty strong claim, but he doesn't come out and flat, flat out say, I'm the Christ. He never, he never, in fact, he never does say that to him. Tell what, what uh, Cora read this morning. They said, just tell us plainly. Finally, Jesus just does it. Says, That's right. He doesn't give him a straight answer. But you don't believe all the things I've done for you. In fact, Second part of that verse, the miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. Miracles in John, chapter 2, the, the uh, changing water into wine, chapter 4, he meets with a Samaritan woman at a well and tells her all about her past without ever having met her. Chapter 5, the healing, the, the drive-by healing. Remember that guy, in the, in the, he doesn't even ask anything. Jesus just says, Take up, get up your mat and walk. And that's pretty much the end of it. Uh, John chapter 6, the changing, uh, excuse me, the, uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and the last one is John chapter 9, the healing of a man who was born blind. Five miracles in the Gospel of John that we've seen. He says, those are enough. You've seen those. They speak for me. But here's the problem. But you do not believe. Why? Why don't they believe? Because you ain't my sheep. You can't hear my voice. You don't recognize it. Now, people always ask when you get to this passage, well, what is Jesus saying here now? Is he saying, uh, is he saying that you're not my sheep because I haven't chosen you to be my sheep? Which would be more of a predestination way of looking at it. I would say, yeah. Or, or is he saying, is it you're not my sheep because when you've heard me, you haven't decided, I want to be a sheep after you. And I would say, yeah. Definitely. They're both in Scripture. To deny the sovereignty of God I don't know how you can read the Bible. But to deny that we have real choices, I don't know how you can read the Bible. I mean, I mean they're there. Don't, don't strip God of his sovereignty in who he is and how he pulls people to himself. That's a ridiculous thing, by the way. That's just ridiculous. Pardon me, I'm going to rant now. I couldn't rant the first two services. So I have to rant now. Um, people go, oh, you know, what's the deal? Uh, I, this isn't fair. If, if, if God's in control of everything, uh, how come, you know, he, if he predestines people, that's just not fair. Everybody prays for their neighbor. Why do you pray for your neighbor if you don't think that God is the one who's going to work in their lives? That's a, why do you pray for anything if you don't believe that God is sovereign and he has control over everything? Just do what I do. Just put the mystery in your theological pipe and smoke it. I don't know how it works. I don't know how it works that God is completely in control and he is over every molecule and how I am responsible for actions that change the course of history. I have no idea. But you've just got to put it in your pipe, roll it up, Smoke it. <laughs> that rolling it up thing. Uh, <laughs> that.
Oops. <laughs> yeah. John chapter 10. So, rant over. Rant over. Why don't they believe? Because they're not the sheep. And Jesus begs them to become a sheep. You can see that later. Believe, he's going to say. Be my sheep. He gives, here he's going to talk through. He's going to say, my sheep listen to my voice. They see miracles and say, I'm going to follow him. My sheep listen to my voice. And there's the benefits. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What's he saying here? He's saying, I have them in my hand. My Father has them in his hand. In fact, I and the Father are one. And it's in there. You are secure. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are secure. You are secure. You can't get any a bigger, bigger grip than this. This passage was very important to me to get through about a six to eight month depression that I went through right when I became a follower of Christ. In spite of everything else, other voices I was hearing, I would hang on for dear life to this passage. How do they respond to this? Verse 31. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And they say, we're not stoning you for any of these, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, are claiming to be God. Now, I got to applaud, I got to applaud the religious rulers here. Because they pick up stones and they were going to kill him instantly. Although they have no authority to do that in political law. If someone was to make a claim that they themselves were God, you were to kill them. And so I, I applaud them that their theology is getting better. In other words, they at least understood that Christ was now making claims that he was God. That is correct. If, however, the Son of God is standing before you and he's fully God and fully man. I'm just going to give you a little hint here. Maybe don't pick up a rock to throw at him. Okay? <laughs> It's a safe thing, safe assumption. So you get one good and one bad, and unfortunately the bad kind of wipes it out. Here's, here's the trickiest answer probably in the New Testament that Jesus ever gives to anyone. He, say, he answers them, because they say, you, you're a mere man, you claim to be God. And here's Jesus' answer, and this is tricksy, so buckle your seatbelts, Dorothy. Hang on. Jesus answered them. He says, is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, the scripture's perfect, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Okay, stop right there. We'll come back to the rest of that in just a minute. Go to the next slide there. Psalm 82. He's quoting out of Psalm 82. And, and, and Jesus is pulling a passage out of a pretty obscure psalm. We're not really even sure, even uh, the people... Uh, uh, the original, like the original Jewish people, had many trains of thought of what this psalm was actually about. What is he saying there in verse 6? And, and really there isn't a context to follow. You can see uh, it's about a judgment scene, and he's saying, how long will you defend the unjust? So he's speaking to people in authority, at least it seems to be, okay? This comes to psalm, verse 6. This is the entire psalm right there. There's only eight verses. He said, this is God speaking. He says, I, he said, you are God's. 
It says, you are sons, you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. All right. It's, it's, a hard, it's a hard passage to know exactly what he's talking about here. The, basically, three big main trains of thought. Number one, possibly could be speaking about angels. They're in authority, and he's speaking of them. Uh, most, most don't believe that because it says, you will die like mere men, you will fall like every other ruler. Well, angels don't die. And so it didn't seem to make sense. Second one, uh, a lot of train of thought was the people in authority were the Jewish people when they were given the Ten Commandments, they were given the law, and they were supposed to disperse it around the world and, and be that, that, that authority over the world. Could be. And the other one was that um, <laughs> I preached this message three times. I can't remember the third one. Um, oh yeah. Just general people in authority. Okay, Just generally to people in authority. Whichever one it was, we don't really know. Probably not the first one, though. But it really doesn't matter because Jesus' argument, and here's where it gets tricksy, so hang on. Jesus' argument is saying it's a how much more argument. How much more? In other words, go back, go to the next slide there. Go to, yeah, John 10. It says this. He says, it's written in the, your Bible. You've read it. He says, I have said they are God's. And he's speaking of, at, at bare minimum, angels. And if nothing else, it's humans he's speaking to. He's saying, he called them gods. How much more? If, would, is it appropriate for this, the one that the Father has set apart, that, that's a phrase meaning uh, is made holy, or the one who is, is set apart in, in a sense of sanctified or made just perfect, as his very own, and sent into the world. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's son? Why do you accuse me of blasphemy? I said I'm God's son. You don't get all bent out of shape when this other thing happens. And, and you know what? That's not even technically true. Angels and men uh, are, are not God. But here I am, I'm standing here, and I claim to be God's son, why do you accuse me of blasphemy? Babe Ruth said, it ain't bragging if you can do it. Jesus said, why are you accusing me of blasphemy when I claim to be God's son, and I am? It ain't blasphemy. And then he's begging him here. He says, do not believe me unless I do what my father does. It's a huge claim when somebody comes around you and says, I'm God. Okay? It's a pretty big one. And he says, but don't believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you don't believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. How do they respond? It ain't good. Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. What does that look like? What does it mean that he escaped their grasp? I don't know. You know, could be there was this big physical altercation. Could have been that invisible force fields came up, or I don't know. Uh, Holly would have to figure that out. But somehow he escapes. They try to grab him. Can you imagine this group of people trying to grab Jesus? And he escapes. And then one of the scariest portions of Scripture. Then Jesus went back. He left. He left. He's never coming back. Not, he's not coming back for public proclamation, the rest of the book of John. He's done. Questioning is over. Listening time is over. You guys had your shot. We're done. 
He went back to the place where John had been baptized in those early days. He, here he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. The, the, the Mecca of religiosity was Jerusalem. They don't get it. John goes, or Jesus goes way out here into the hinterlands and they get it. But the, those people in the, in the religious land, they, they don't get it. I want to close this morning by asking you a question. Do you, do you really hold to John 10 being as true as it is? It's just about a picture of who Jesus is, that he is the good shepherd, that that's who he is. And then do you view yourself as a sheep? The benefits of being a sheep of Jesus is that you can know him, or better yet, that, that he will know you. That you'll hear his voice. You'll, you'll have clear guidance where to go. Uh, that he'll protect you. When wolves come, this is not a hired hand, shepherd. This is a shepherd who's going to care for you. That he says you're going to go in and out. You're going to have in and out pasture. That you're going to have life. That you're going to have life to its full. That you'll have eternal life. Those are the benefits. But what are the other options? You know, it might be a person who likes to play the options. What's the other options? According to this, there's thieves, there's strangers, there's hired men, and there's wolves. I'll just, I'll just help you do the math. Those are bad. Okay? This is good. This is bad. Every day you're deciding, Jesus, are you going to be, I'm going to follow you. Am I going to follow the thief, the stranger, the wolf, or the hired hand? Let's pray together. Jesus, you are our good shepherd. That is a fact that I know uh, too well that my words this morning have not been strong enough to, to clearly state that you are a good shepherd. And so, Jesus, would you do something within us, even as we move to a time of worship and communion, would you do something in us that causes us to long to be with you. Some of us this morning bring things into this room that make it very difficult for us. We're walking through the valley of the shadow of death right now. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning that we could just say, I need to hang on to my shepherd's uh, rod and staff and I just need to follow him. So, Jesus, would you shepherd us by your spirit each individually. Lord, there might be people in this room for the first time in their lives this morning they want to place their trust in you saying, I see the problem of my sin and I want to be rescued from the wrath of God by the love of God. So I pray, Lord, for them, even as they come forward to take communion this morning, that they would say, this is, this is my decision to become a follower of Jesus, to want to be a sheep. God, my fear in all of this from John chapter 5 through now has been that our hearts would become religious. God, I start with me that my heart would become religious and that I'd become a person who would totally miss standing face to face with the Son of God. Jesus, by your Spirit, the only way that's going to not happen is by your Spirit. So I pray that that would happen in us even as we worship. Bring things to our mind, Spirit. Speak in this service, the remainder of it, so that we can hear your voice. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Lord, would you make that true? Even now, we pray in Jesus' name.